Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in. I'm Simon Osimo and you're listening to the Hobocane podcast where I share stories that will educate, inform and inspire you to live a life of significance. Now last week we heard from Dr. James Densley, a Brit living here in America, a professor, criminologist, TEDx speaker and writer for places like The Guardian, LA Times and co-founder of The Violence Project. Now James shared his path to becoming an internationally known expert on gun violence and in this episode we're going to focus on how James finds identity in being a British American and what that transition looks like in his new life here in America. But before we get into this week's episode, if you get value from this content, don't forget to subscribe to be notified every time I release a new and inspiring conversation. And if you're someone that is active on Twitter or you want to watch the videos on my YouTube channel, please head over and look for the tagline at Simon Osimo. So let's dive into this week's conversation with Dr. James Densley. So, Dr. James Densley, thank you for, for joining me again. Pleasure. Yeah. I know, um, James, in part one, we discussed about your PhD, your sort of love of street gangs, and, and how you became a sort of national and international expert. So, if people haven't listened, they should go back and, and do that. But I want to dive in now about you being another another Brit here in America, but where you've you've changed. You're now British American. If I look at your Wiki, Wikipedia, it says British That's American. That's right. There. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I did. I, I actually, uh, I, I did my citizenship uh, application and everything else in the lead up to the 2016 presidential election and I'm I'm going to be honest like I was very concerned at the time about the implications of a Donald Trump presidency for what it would mean as somebody who's a green card holder. And, and I just decided, I think I need to actually get my citizenship uh, just in case, you know, the wheels fall off effectively. Yeah, yeah. And so I did. Uh, and, uh, you know, so yes, I now have the, the, the dual nationality in that regard. Yeah. And it's interesting because, I mean, I've got to go through the process. My green card expires next October. So hopefully there's no one listening from Immigration <laughs> Customs Enforcement here. To, to, yeah, you know, but they'll so be banging down the door. But, but, yeah. So I'm counting down. So I'm going to go through the process. Well, and it's interesting because someone said to me, a friend said, you know, do you feel anything after being here for nine years? I said, I am very grateful for the opportunities that America ha- ha- has given me. But I am similar to where you were just going. But I am very aware that um, even being black in English, there is there's differences that being English brings you. I mean, when yes. I went through my application, you know, I had to go to the American embassy in in London. You know, I get there with my papers and someone's behind the big glass, and I'm thinking, how's this going to go? What questions are going to ask me yeah and we sit down in the room have the conversation and the guy said so where are you going again i said um minnesota he said, oh, let me think do i know anyone in minnesota that might be able to give you a job and, <laughs> and that was the, that was my immigration interview yeah. to, to get my green card and i've got to be a little bit biased here uh, would that be the same, James, if I was a Somalian, you know, Nigerian, you know, um, someone from the Middle East? You know, my mind says most probably not. And I think it's mostly, yeah. I'm allowed that bias, I think. Um, yeah. But it's um, being English is very different. So I think even you being fearful of Donald Trump, I think we're, we're from the right country no, to, to have some stability here. I, no, I think you're you're exactly right. And it, it, to the extent where, when I very first moved to the United States, I lived in New York for three years. I then went back to the UK for three years, finished my PhD, and then I've lived in Minnesota for 10. 
And I remember, particularly when I was very first, uh, you know, back in those days, I was a bit younger and I had some mm. hair and I was a bit fitter and yeah. everything else as well. And you'd open your mouth anywhere, grocery store, the bar, yeah. the you know, in, just in public. Yeah. And immediately people are like, oh my God, it's a British, a British yeah. accent. Like, and they were like almost mesmerized. And mm. it was almost like a Jedi mind trick. I could yeah. say anything and they'd believe it. Yeah. And there was a real power to the British identity in the United States. There's a sort of cultural fascination, in it, and you see it throughout popular culture. You know, Americans love Downton Abbey, and they love British dramas, and yeah. and 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 everything else. And so you kind of play into a little bit of that stereotype, if, if I'm honest. Yeah. And in many ways, it works to your advantage, and it becomes a it becomes a privilege that you have, that you have to be very mindful of. But at the same time, it does benefit you in the United States, which is, I agree with you, which is totally different to the vast majority of people who do immigrate to this country mm. and experience so much racism, so many barriers uh, to their success moving forward. And so it is weird in that regard of thinking of myself as an immigrant mm. living in the United States and yet not really experiencing many of the the downsides yeah. that come with that designation. So it's it's a radical change. And yeah. it's interesting you say that because even for me being a black guy, I can feel, you know, people use the term white privilege, whatever it is, you know, and I think uh, most of my listeners would know part of my, my background. I don't necessarily really buy into that because I wouldn't say that I've experienced or seen white privilege um, but I've definitely felt privileged because of being English. Yes. You know, I have been stopped by the police and, you know, perhaps I haven't conformed to their stereotype and have heard me talk and instantly it's changed their opinion. That's it. Um, my good friend Tina Rowe in Colorado that you've met, you know, she always says, well, Simon, you know, you're you're um, black, you've got an English accent. It's like a royal flushing card, you know. Yeah. People all in instantly think that you're intelligent just because, you know, you're here and you, you've done these it is. things. So, I mean... It is. I definitely do feel privileged because of my um, my nationality as being being English. And it's strange to think of that because you know usually in the circumstances of being an immigrant, it, it, there's a different perception in many ways. I mean, I I remember, and this was this will sound real like privilege, right? But I remember before having a conversation with people about immigration. It was in a class actually. It was a scholarly mm. conversation. There were professors yeah. and everything else there, and they were sort of talking a lot about the burden of of immigration and all this type of stuff. And someone said, you know, people are coming up through the borders and these caravans and all this type of stuff. And I said, you know, I arrived in the UK on business class. Like the conception of immigration in this country is totally broken. Like, mm. you, but we put people into these neat little boxes and we say like, well, this is how Latino people must yeah. think. And this is how, you know, immigrants must think. Yeah. But you don't really understand the diversity of the population in the United States yeah. and the different experiences that they have. And I think, yeah, in this regard, being British, I think, has ended up being kind of a, a, a you know, a, yes, a privilege, but also an advantage, I think, uh, professionally and personally, I think, in the United States. Um, and, and then weirdly, when I think about from a professional standpoint, how it's also benefited me, it's more than just you know, well, you have an accent and, and these types and the stereotypes associated with it, but it's enabled me to, in my professional world, sort of have expertise that transcends borders and everything mm. else. So if, take gangs as an example. My research is both in the United Kingdom and in the United States. And so automatically you have this interesting comparative perspective that you're bringing to all the mm. conversations that you're coming at that maybe a lot of other people don't have. 
And so that in turn feeds into opportunities where you get to speak at conferences or you get invited to uh, to participate in certain things because they're looking for a global perspective yeah. on something, a comparative perspective on something, something that's going to be able to interpret events in the United States from a different lens to say, well, how do you interpret, for example, policing, gun laws, yeah. you name it. How do you interpret those things as a Brit in the United States? Do you see things differently? I think that in a, in a professional sense also gives you a little bit of, a, of an advantage, a different perspective. Yeah, that's true. And I mean, I've also um, seen part of that. I mean, you know, my son, my oldest son, a couple of weeks ago, so I said, Dad, how many countries have you been to? I said, I don't know, maybe 25, 30. Uh, and he said, well, you know, can you, can you say them? I said, well, get, get a pen and paper and let's try and write them down. Yeah. Yeah, and I didn't. I, I can't remember what the number is. It's somewhere between 20 and 30. But again, even doing that, that is experience that others might not necessarily have had here in America. You know, so it does change my perspective and my views to either how I talk, how I um, articulate key points, or just my knowledge and understanding. Because it comes down to uh, a good point that you raised about we assume that everyone that arrives here is either on a boat somewhere, they've got one suitcase and no money. Yes. Well, well, as you say, I mean, you know, people are coming here. You know, I owned multiple houses when I immigrated here. You know, you arrived in first class. You know, we're not not all immigrants are poor, but there is this stereotype that can come with it. You know, it's not often seen as to what do those immigrants have to offer the, the US to, to a small minority. To a small yes. minority. But, but changing the subject then, Jane, before we really go down a, a rabbit hole and, <laughs> and, and get ourselves in, into a political um, conversation, but what about what you had to leave behind in the UK? Mm. So you, like me, have an American wife. You've now got sort of you know, um, two sons. Um, we're like Ebony and Ivory, really. We I'm are. American wives, two, two sons. <laughs> <laughs> similar age, we really are. It's like separated at birth. But so how, how was it for you then moving here um, you know, in your 20s, I guess you would have yeah. been, late 20s, yeah. you know, friends, family to, to start again. How was that for you? Yeah, I guess that's the hardest thing. And I think that's true then of any immigrant, I think, who has to start over and move, and, and move again. That is the hardest thing, you know, being separated from uh, family, parents. I've got a, my sister lives in the UK as well. Um, you know, your closest friends, the people that you grew up with. And, you, and it becomes, it's weird, like the world is smaller in so many ways than yeah. it ever has been, right? I mean, I remember when I was very first just dating uh, my now wife, and we, for a little bit of a period of time, we were long distance between the UK and the United States. And I remember I had to buy a phone card to call her, and it was costing me, you know, a pound a minute to have a conversation with someone in the United States. Nowadays, you know, we've got FaceTime and Facebook and, and Skype and, and Zoom, and you can communicate across the world, and it makes it a lot easier. But even that being said, it's hard. It's hard not being able to see your friends and family when you want to see them. Um, you know, at the moment with COVID, um, it's been hard to not be able to see my mom. I lost my dad this year. Uh, he passed away this year. That was really hard to be 4,000 miles away when you get that news from your family. I mean, it's, it's devastating. And although I was there within 24 hours, thanks to the you know, modern technology like airplanes, you know, um, not being there, not being there day in, day out is difficult. And so there are things that you do miss, mostly people, I think is the biggest thing. And there are also just silly cultural things that you miss as well. Like yeah. you miss the banter that you might get in the pub around, you know, your favorite football, soccer mm. team yeah. or, and things like that. And, and some of the food and, and those aspects, you're always going to miss those comforts of home, I think. So James, one of the things that I found from living here was that, you know, I was a police officer, you know, served the Queen ultimately, 
Um, and was proud to be English, but I didn't realise how patriotic I was until I came to America. That someone mentioned something about the Queen or William. Like, oh no, how no, no, you can't say that. How how dare you? you know. So so I, I think my patriotism got stronger the further I was away from England. I don't know. Have you got any experiences like that at all? Yeah, I mean, it's that. I think for me, it's almost like the classic, like you don't know what you've got till it's gone mm. scenario. And and yes, you do. And also, you don't realise just who you are until you're taken out of that context. It, for me, at least, I think that's the biggest thing is when you are like everybody else. So when I go back to the UK now, I'm just another British guy with a British accent with all the other British people, mm. right? And so you don't see how different you are until you're taken out of that context. Mm. And I think it was being taken out of that context that then got me thinking like, Wow, I didn't realize quite how British I was. You know, that some of the, the the values I had, or some of the viewpoints that I had, yeah. or some of the things that uh, that I thought and believed. And yeah, in a weird way, I think you're right. You do get an element of sort of uh, patriotism or, or something like that that kind of speaks to that idea that you are seeing yourself as uh, separate from that country and then you feel sort of protective over it at the same time. And then what about your sons? I mean, I know with my two sons, I was um, consulting for an organisation and it was they, they had a, an issue surrounding um, sort of discrimination. Someone had felt it had been discriminated against a sort of a security process. And uh, um, because I sort of represented the organisation, I said, well, can you meet the person who's making a complaint against us? Because, you know, you built the programme, you know, you trained the programme, can you explain it? You know, and I sort of met this person, I was saying about, you know, it wasn't nothing to do with your ethnicity uh, it was just you know you fell victim to this program because of a set of behaviors and this guy he really took the conversation in different directions about race and ethnicity and do you know the difference and all this type of stuff and just by chance my wife was going to collect me from this meeting and she had my two sons with me and there was a coffee shop in this place and so my sons came in and i could see them and i wanted to take the question from them. i said well look you know my dad is nigerian my mum is white english i consider myself british i'm living in america you know my my wife is american my eldest son was born in the uk now lives here in the, the us my youngest son was born in the us and so they sort of came over and i asked him the question and said so where, where are we from and he sort of looked at me a bit strange and said well ask my youngest where he's from and you know what he said james He's born here in America. Do you know where he said he's from? Where did he say? He's from, I'm from England. Did he and really? then I said, ask my, the oldest where he's from. And then he was born in the UK. He said, I'm American. So I said, you know, we, we look at all these things. The question is, you know, what is our identity? You know, mm -hmm. and who are we as our individuals where, you know, they've got black, white, you know, different sort of geographical um, locations. I mean, um, I sort of tee up that example because do you find it difficult with your two sons to maintain any type of sort of English heritage or understanding? Yeah, that actually... And that's a complex way to get there. It but, is a complex way. But, 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 but it's there. funny, but you say it's a complex way to get there. Maybe the listeners are thinking that was a complex way to get there. I perfectly understand understand you though because yeah. you know I've got a very similar situation which is my oldest son who's who's 10 years old now he was born in London in the UK my youngest son who's four years old was born right here in Minnesota and so when my oldest son is asked a little bit different to, uh, flip to your yeah. kids whenever we're on vacation or wherever somebody asks him like where are you from he says oh I'm from London and, but he says it in an American accent because he spent 10 years of his yeah, life right yeah. here. And people look at him like he's got two heads. They're like, 
wait a minute, yeah. you're speaking with an American accent, but you say you're from London, what does that mean? Mm. My youngest, on the other hand, born here in Minnesota, really identifies as an American. And it's very different. And not only that, to really confuse matters more, you know, my wife is part Japanese, uh, part Dutch, um, you know, so, and at times, you know, really, if you look at her, you'd think that she was Hispanic, is actually more of how she appears. Right. So we also confuse people in terms of like what our uh, identity structures are and everything else as well. And I think what's interesting is my oldest son really has embraced his UK side. He's all about uh, soccer. He's a huge soccer fan. So, you know, he supports a team in the UK, follows that almost religiously. Um, and I think that has been his kind of um, way of, of saying culturally connected to the United Kingdom through sport, essentially, mm -hmm. has been one of the ways that he's done that. And then, you know, through uh, trips back home, uh, through family connections, you know, week, weekend FaceTime calls with uh, with family and stuff like that. We've been able to keep those some of some of those British traditions and things alive. And, um, you know, we certainly we drink a lot of tea in our house, um, which is very cliche. Yeah. Uh, you know, we love a Sunday roast dinner, um, you know, all these types of things which, you know, are, are very British and, and we continue to incorporate them in our lives. At the same time, we also eat a lot of rice in our house um, and, and sushi and, and things like that because of the Japanese side of the family. And so we, we do try and embrace all these different sort of cultural aspects as we, as we develop that identity. Yeah, it's going nice. I took us around uh, a big path to get there, but, but it's very good. similar. Well, yeah, because I wanted to tee it up for you. Know, now you're a British American. I mean, what are you? What is your identity now? What would you say? How would you try and categorize it? Then? Now you're British American. Yeah, well, we're getting deep here for the that listeners. Is deep. It's, like, no, it's difficult. And I, did, I didn't give James this question. I should say that as well. I've thrown that in there. He has no idea. No, what I'm gonna, literally what I'm no idea. Um, no, it's, um, you know, I, I think of myself as being British American, if I'm honest. Like, I do think, I, you know, I know deep down I'm very British in America. Um, and I think in, in, in that regard, I, I would maybe lean toward that. But, um, but the American part of me is really quite strong now. I mean, you know, um, I've lived in this country uh, for 13 of the last 16 years. You know, I was married in this country. I married an American. Um, and uh, I, I've worked most of my professional life in the United States. And so uh, you can't help but feeling, you know, an attachment to the country and also quite grateful for the opportunities that, that have, have been afforded me in this country. You know, and to put that into context, doing a PhD sounds really fancy, right? You know, oh, it's Dr. Densley. Yeah. You know, when you when you say it on a podcast and people are thinking, oh, you know, all that privilege there. Taking, doing graduate school sucks is really the bottom line, right? It's 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 four or five years of your life that that the whole time you're questioning why the hell you're ever doing it, and you're really questioning the likelihood are you ever going to get a job? And when I moved to the US, I was very very lucky to land a tenure track position at a university that I've been able to work my way through the ranks to become a, a full professor, and I do look at that and think, would I have had that same opportunity if I had stayed in the UK? Um, would, I, would I have been as lucky to have those opportunities? And would, I, would have some of the things that have come my way subsequently have happened had I not been in the United States? And so, you know, there's definitely aspects of America that make you realize it's important to be here and it's and it sort of shaped my trajectory. There's no doubt about it. Yeah, and actually there was a guy, um, Wasim Debussy, I think his name is, uh, an Australian guy, um, really um, interesting background. I interviewed him uh, a couple of weeks ago. That podcast hasn't aired as yet. I think he'll, he'll air just before you. 
He is from born in Lebanon, moved to Australia when he was nine, ten, I think, from from memory. You know, grew up in Australia, would go back to Lebanon. They're like, well, you're not Lebanese. Mm. And they're like, well, yeah, right. I was born here. And then in Australia, Australians would say to him, you're not Australian, you're Lebanese. You know, so he was sort of trapped between these two cultures. And I can sort of relate to that a little bit because even for us, as you know, people are sort of, you know, like you say, working class, but sort of moved to middle class. I go back and even some of my friends joke to, to me and say, you know, you said party. Like, no, I didn't. I said party. I said, no, you said party. Yeah, I'm like, water. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, you said can, water. And it's like, no, it's water. Yeah, yeah. So you, so you yeah. don't realise these things. You, you can get trapped between um, two two cultures. It's yeah, the, langu- the, the accent and the language thing is really true. I mean, my I know for a fact my accent has dramatically softened since coming in, into the United mm. States. And uh, I now almost at times sound Australian because I've, I've created this sort of hybrid uh, of a British and American accent. And for whatever reason that has happened. And, and but when I go back home now, people look at me like, is this guy American, Australian, yeah. is he British? And then it takes about a week and then all of a sudden it comes back. And then, and then all of a sudden the accent's much stronger again and, it, yeah. and I sound like me again. Mm-hmm. It's, it's funny that those things, uh, those things happen. The accent one for me is, is one that I think I tried at first almost like uh, fight back against some of the Americanisms, you know. So I would say, no, it's football, not soccer, yeah. you know, and it's the pavement, not the sidewalk and this mm-hmm. sort of stuff. But at the end of the day, you know, I'm, I'm a professor and my job is to make sure I'm easily understood uh, mm-hmm. from my students and, and clients and yeah. other fellow professors and everything else. And I found I was I was fighting an uphill battle, which instead it made me realize like i had to become effectively bilingual you know you have to be you have to speak english and you have to speak american english and and i've i you know i I now navigate those two worlds in that way and a lot of it i think of the softening of my accent was if i'm going to be talking all day on a stage as a professor as a teacher um i've got to make sure people can understand what i'm saying and so i ended up with this sort of hybrid but then when i go back home people look at me and like What's wrong with this guy? Yeah. Uh, it's it's funny. And it's funny because I sometimes do that when I um, present. I normally stop after a few minutes and say, okay, how are we doing on the accent check? You know, because obviously, <laughs> I mean, you're, you, you're from Leicester, but you sound more posh. I'm just like working class yeah. um, stuff. But it's but it's funny, you know, and I, I do that sort of accent check. But I do find myself talking slower when I'm presenting so people can understand as well. That's it's it. almost like when someone's being sort of um, rude to a deaf person, when they're talking really slowly to them, assuming they yeah. can't understand them and stuff. Yeah. Fascinating. So let's move on. So um, that's sort of a bit about um, England, but I want to just ask a question about um, you as to where you are, um, where you are now. So what were you most challenged about then from making a transition from, you know, one country to the next? You know, I, I would say the, the, the biggest transition, I think, is is you're you're trying to kind of establish, but at the same time, almost reinvent yourself. And there's pros and cons to that. Right. I actually think in some ways it maybe worked to my advantage that you were an unknown entity so that you could, you know, basically my life in the United States begins effectively with, you know, being Dr. Densley and being, a, you know, a Ph.D. graduate. So a lot of the stuff that comes before that doesn't necessarily exist in the U.S. context. So from a professional standpoint, that might be advantageous where you sort of you're this blank slate and, and you sort of build yourself from there, whereas you don't have maybe some of the baggage that you might have from the UK. So in some ways, I think that was that was maybe an advantage. But 
And the other thing that you that I think I've really tried to do in the US in recent years is there is a risk that you can kind of get pigeonholed as, well, you, you're, you're a gang expert, but you only really studied them in London, so you don't really know anything about what's going on here because America's different. Mm -hmm. So I really tried to take steps to educate myself about what was going on in the United States context. And in so doing, you start to diversify your expertise. I'll give you an example. In London, the vast majority of street violence is with knives. In the United States, it's with guns. Yeah. So once you start doing a little bit of research with gangs in the United States, you start to realize, okay, this gun issue is, is a big one. And it's a rabbit hole that you can go down real quickly, but you have to then educate yourself on the Second Amendment and what it means for the American people. And you have to educate yourself on all the myriad issues that are associated with gun violence. Well, fast forward a few years, and before you know it, that expertise in knife crime and gangs in the UK has evolved into an expertise in gun violence and, and, uh, and, and youth violence in the United States. And that then becomes another building block that you can start to add to your repertoire to expand your research agenda. So you don't just get pigeonholed as like, well, James was the guy that knows a little bit about gangs in London. It's now that James actually knows some things about these other aspects as well. By broadening that out, you get greater opportunities, I think, to move forward. Yeah, it's interesting. I know one of your articles, hopefully I got the right one, James, but it says um, one went viral in, was it in the LA Times? Uh, that's right. Yeah, yes. uh, all mass shooters have four things in common. I think. Do you do you put that down? Is that something that you learned here in the US, or do you think you would have been like that in in the UK? Sort of that being that chameleon, being able to sort of diversify into you know change different colours. You know, just, just sort of reinvent yourself. Is that part of a key to your success now? And I, I do want to touch on the violence project before we close. So yeah, I, you say I, I think it is. I think it is. And and the reason for that is, I think it would have been very easy and very comfortable to continue down the same path if I was in the UK. So you've built that network of trusted contacts on the streets of London and then think, okay, well, I've written my first book on gangs in London. I'll now do a follow-up on gangs in London and there'll be a third book on gangs in London. Yeah. And before you know it, you're the gangs in London guy. Well, I couldn't do that. I moved to the, the Twin Cities and all of a sudden I don't know anybody. Yeah. Uh, and I had to rebuild those relationships. And actually what you realize is the research questions are different in the Twin Cities that they were in London. And so you end up going down these different paths. And you mentioned the op-ed we wrote, that is obviously an extension of the work we're doing at the moment on uh, mass shooters. That is a, a, a trajectory change. Collaborating with Gillian Peterson, a psychologist, I'm my, and myself a sociologist by background, we just were getting frustrated with the, the, the cycle of the news, which was there was a mass shooting and no one had a good explanation for it. And Jill came to me one day and said, hey, you've studied gun violence, you've studied violence, right? Mm. Could we apply some of that to understanding something like mass shootings? And I said, well, it's a bit of an extension, but I think we could figure it out. Um, and over time, that work has evolved to the point where you know, we were interviewing mass shooters in prison. Um, we have been interviewing the families uh, of victims, survivors, uh, parents of mass shooters. Again, you can talk to gang members on the street. You know this, you're yeah, a cop. Yeah. If you can interview gang members on the street, it's not that far removed to be able to then interview people in their homes and, and in different contexts. And so as long as you've got those transferable skills, they transfer. And that's, I think, what I've been trying to do over the last few years is really broaden the horizon to be in, asking similar questions, but just in sort of related contexts.
Yeah, and Jane, it's been, you know, over our two-part uh, conversation, it's been great to get to know you a bit better. And for me to ask you questions as a friend just in a bar having a happy hour, I might not necessarily ask you. So it's been, you know, really grateful for you taking the time um, to talk to me. And in relation to the Violence Project, I know your own personal website is jamesdensley.com. How can people learn more about your research into mass shootings? Yeah, so that is theviolenceproject.org. And what we've got on there is a database of anyone who's killed four more people in a public space in the United States. And it's their psychosocial life histories. We've got about 160 variables about all aspects of their life, how they got their guns, how they grew up, you know, mental health challenges, everything's in there. Uh, and then we've got a book coming out uh, next year uh, called The Violence Project. Uh, that will be uh, on bookshelves next year. And you're starting to work towards online learning as well. Have I, I hope you haven't given away any too many, too <laughs> yeah, many surprise, secrets there, but no. surprise, I can cut it out if we No, <laughs> no, not at all. No, no. yes, you're right. We, we're calling it off-ramps. Yeah. Uh, and it is a spin-off for the work we've been doing on mass shootings. What we've identified is in our research, we think there are tangible intervention points on the pathway to violence. You know, and, and what we want to try and do is make that uh, research accessible to the broadest possible audience. And so we want to do a little bit of sort of uh, interactive video content, um, you know, some lesson plans, things that teachers, social workers, uh, police officers can interact with. And so we're working on that at the moment and that hopefully will launch again uh, next year. Well, James, you're doing some fantastic work in some uh, many different difficult and challenging areas. So thank you for joining me today. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for the conversation. Thank you for joining the Who I Became podcast. To help spread this inspiring story, be sure to share it with your friends, hit the like button, and of course, subscribe to our channel so you won't miss out on any future episodes. We'd also love to hear how this story impacted you, so leave a comment on whatever platform you're watching us from. To learn more about this episode, our guests, or Simon, head over to the Simon Osimo slash podcast and sign up to receive the latest information delivered straight to your inbox. Once again, thank you for joining us for the Who I Became podcast.